Well, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend for our, our service here at South Bay Community Church. Well, I hope you received my e-news this weekend, letting you know that we're going to begin meeting in person beginning next weekend. That would be January 29th and 30th. That's Saturday and Sunday. And we told you all along that we're going to resume services as quickly as we can. And I want to let you know why we decided to begin next weekend. First, we are heartened by the news from various outlets, media outlets, saying that in California, the surge is beginning to show signs of abating. And the medical community has said all along that they expected this particular surge to peak probably at the end of January, beginning of February. And that appears to be happening as the number of new cases this week has begun to tick down a little bit. Second, we are encouraged by the fact that given the number of cases, we aren't seeing as many hospitalizations as we did last year. For example, we know of only one person in our church who was hospitalized during this current surge, and he is at home, and he's doing fine. Third, we haven't heard of anyone in our church uh, losing their battle to COVID during this surge as we did so often last year. And fourth, most of the cases we have heard of have been fairly mild, and all this is really good news. Fifth, the, re the fifth reason why we're going to begin meeting next weekend and not this weekend is because we want to give everybody a little extra time to get ready. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we need a minimum of 35 volunteers per service to do church here. We need a minimum of 70 volunteers per service if we provide kids crew. That's more than 100 volunteers that we need per service every weekend. And we have three services, so you can do the math on that one. And many of our volunteers have been impacted by COVID. Uh, many have uh, tested positive. Others live with someone who has tested positive. Therefore, they have to quarantine as well. And so our volunteer pool is taking quite a big hit. And so we want to give them that extra time to get ready. If we were to meet this weekend, it would have it been too difficult to get all the help that we need. The sixth reason why we're going to begin meeting next weekend is because we desperately need to meet. We need to meet. Schools are open. Restaurants are open. People are out and about. Trader Joe's, Costco, Target, they're all packed. Airplane, airplanes are flying. And then this last Monday, more than 70,000 people packed SoFi Stadium, most of them not wearing masks, to watch a football game. And how much more important is it for us to meet as a church? And so we're going to begin meeting starting next weekend in person, January 29th and 30th. And I want you to know, we're going to do everything we can to keep you safe. And one of the things that we're going to do is, again, we're going to reduce the seat, seating capacity here in the worship center one more time. We're going to reach it a little bit further. And, uh, of course, if you're not comfortable coming inside, you can always join us outside uh, underneath the tent outdoors. And, by the way, kids' crew will not be meeting in person next weekend. However, if we can get enough volunteers, they will begin meeting in person the week after that. That would be, I believe, February 5th and 6th. 
And insofar as small to mid-sized groups are concerned, they can begin meeting this weekend outdoors only. This weekend, January 22nd, 23rd, outdoors only. This would include young adults, our college group, men's and women's group, life groups, evolution, and legacy. And then all these groups can, be meet, can begin meeting indoors starting the weekend of January 29th and 30th. That'd be next weekend. And that would also include, in addition to ones I just mentioned, Tuesday Night Prayer, the ukulele ministry, and Young at Heart. They can all begin meeting indoors starting next weekend. So that's the plan. All right, that's the plan. I hope uh, to see you. I hope you can join us next weekend. Um, I want to thank you so much on behalf of our staff and leaders for your patience for your understanding, for your prayers, and for your support. Uh, you mean everything to us. You mean the world to us, and we can't wait to see you. Well, today we're continuing in our series, Now What? And the title of this series is a two-word question that really arises out of the current state of affairs. Um, that's all the things that are going on in the world today. How then do we live in amidst all this uncertainty? Now what? And for the answer to that question, we are, what better place to look than to the scriptures, to the Bible, uh, because the Bible was written um, in times of great uncertainty. The Bible can answer the question, now what? And uh, what do we do? We learned the very first weekend that we put our hope in God. Now what? We put our hope in God no matter what's going on. We put our hope in God. Second, we learned last weekend from Pastor Greg, he said that we love one another. That's what we need to do. We just need to keep loving one another during these crazy times, right? Today, I want to tell you what God told the prophet Ezekiel to do in, face, in the face of uncertainty. So I want you to grab a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 3 in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 3. And uh, you, you might also want to pull out a pad of paper to take notes. You will also find all the scriptures that we're going to be covering today on our South Bay Community Church app. Download that from the App Store if you don't have it already. And by the way, if you want to listen to this or uh, message or watch it at any time during the week, you can do so at our YouTube channel, SBCC Live. I understand our messages are also now on Spotify, so you can listen to the messages on Spotify as well. Okay, so let's begin our time in a word of prayer. Um, and I am looking forward to uh, sharing God's word with you today, but uh, let's pray first, okay? Father, thank you so much. Thank you, God, so much for, for the direction and the leading that you have given to us. Um, you know, our heart is to protect our church. And God, our, our heart is also to continue to open and to meet with people and be the church that you want us to be. And so, Father, we look forward to, to next weekend. But, Father, I look forward to today. I, I look forward to what you have to say today. And, Father, I know that there are a lot of people out there who still going through some very tough times. Um, it may not be COVID. It may be other issues. Uh, whatever they are, Father, I pray that you would extend your hand of grace and your hand of goodness and touch each and every one out there. I pray, God, that you would touch their hearts. I pray that you would bring healing to them if they need healing. I pray that you would bring encouragement to them. I pray that they would sense the warmth of your presence right there with them. So, Father, thank you so much for that. Father, I, I, I'm excited about today's message. I ask, God, that you would speak very clearly to us. In many ways, these are very tough words to hear, but I pray that you would speak to us. pray that it be you, not me. So thank you, Father. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I don't know if you recognize this chap or not. Um, this is President Grover Cleveland. He was the only man ever to serve as President of the United States uh, for two non-consecutive terms, two non-consecutive terms, which means he was elected in 1884 and he lost re-election in 1888 and then he ran for president again and won in 1892 and served another four years. So he's the only president to have served two non-consecutive terms. He is also the only president ever to have gotten married in the White House. He married, when he was 49 years old, President of the United States, he married a young lady named Frances Folsom, who was 21. This is the two of them together here. She was 21, which made her the youngest first lady in our nation's history, a 21-year-old first lady, if you can imagine that. Well, in 1988, President Cleveland signed an executive order in which he created a military reservation right here on a bluff in San Pedro, if you can believe that. The site had a spectacular view of San Pedro Harbor and a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean from where you could spot enemy ships. Well, when World War II broke out in 1914, the U.S. War Department accelerated the development of this site, and they named it Fort MacArthur, and they named it after Army Lieutenant General Arthur MacArthur, who was the father of five-star General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, before long, Fort MacArthur became a full-blown military outpost uh, with the military installation, uh, and the military installed these gun batteries um, to defend the city and port from, uh, from enemy attack. Now, here's a recent photo of one of their gun batteries that's in the foreground, and in the background, you can see the Korean Friendship Bell. Uh, and many of you have walked up there, but you may not have known that right next to it are, are, is this old military gun battery. And here's an old photo of soldiers firing off practice rounds at that very same gun battery. During World War II, soldiers would, from this vantage point, scan the seas in search of enemy ships and enemy submarines. At one time, the U.S. military even deployed ground-based supersonic anti-aircraft Nike missiles like these right here, install them at the fort. And thus, Fort MacArthur was a very significant military watchtower that protected the city of Los Angeles. Now, rewind. 2,600 years ago, the people of God, the Jews, also faced an enemy. They were the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar II. Babylonians control much of the civilized world as this map shows. You can see the darkened area. That's where the Babylonians controlled. Roughly in 597 B.C., so that would have been about 2,600 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem and took control of it. And they captured 10,000 Jews in the process and took them to Babylon. Here's what 2 Kings 24, verse 10 says about that. And it says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. They took control of it. And then you look down at verse 14, it says, And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Right? So 
one of the men, one of the men that the Babylonians carried away in the captivity was a 25-year-old young adult named Ezekiel who happened to be a priest. Now, a priest was someone whose job it was to speak to God on behalf of people. A priest spoke to God on behalf of people. When Ezekiel turned 30 years old, God called him to also be a prophet. Now, a prophet was someone who spoke to people on behalf of God. Priests spoke to God on behalf of people. A prophet spoke to people on behalf of God. Well, God called Ezekiel to do both, and it was very rare for someone to be both a prophet and a priest, but Ezekiel was. When God called Ezekiel to be a prophet, here's what God said to him. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3. Ezekiel wrote, and he said to me, Son of man, I sent you, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Can stop right there. So God told Ezekiel that his ministry would, as a prophet would be to his own people, the Jews. And remember, they were all, they were not in Jerusalem any longer. They were all held captive in Babylon. And it was going to be Ezekiel's mission to speak to the 10,000 Jews that were held captive in Babylon. And then here's what God told Ezekiel. And I'll break it up into bite-sized chunks for you, all right? First, take a look at Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. Let's look at 17. He said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. All right, and stop right there. So first, God told Ezekiel that he was going to be a watchman for Israel. He was going to be a watchman for the house of Israel. So in addition to being a prophet and in addition to being a priest, Ezekiel was to be a watchman. The Hebrew word for watchman refers to someone who looks out for or he watches out for, right? And that's what the watchmen at Fort MacArthur did. They were always watching out for the bad guys. And if they saw the enemy coming, it was their duty to warn the people and protect the city. So a watchman warned others. And that's what God told Ezekiel to do in the last part of that verse. I'll read it for you again. Whenever you hear a word from, from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So Ezekiel was to warn the Jews about whatever God told him to warn them about. Now, my daughters have, both of them have an alarm system on their car. And, uh, and like all alarm systems, it will go off from time to time. Uh, like when there's an earthquake, uh, when there's a jolt, or when someone explodes a firecracker too close to the car, or when or sometimes when some of the critters that we have in our neighborhood show up and brush up against the car. I captured these images this week on our ring camera. This is Sylvester the skunk. We gave them all names. Sylvester the skunk. And then the very same night, same pic uh, picture was taken the same night. This is Rocket the raccoon. And they showed up the very same night. It's gotten to the point where we hear the alarm, the car alarm go off so often it doesn't even phase us. It doesn't even, we don't even bother to check. Well, that's exactly what happened this week, Thursday afternoon, while I was writing this message. I'm at the office, sitting at the office, um, you know, at my desk, clacking away at my keyboard, and I heard a car alarm go off. 
Well, I didn't know whose car alarm it was. Our offices are on the second floor, and I, didn't, I looked about it and I didn't see anything, and I couldn't see my car. But uh, I heard the uh, car alarm go off, and I just kept clacking at my keyboard, and eventually the car alarm stopped, but it went on for quite a while. And I got up, and I decided I better check. So I went over, and Pastor James and Pastor Dan were in the office, so I mentioned to them, I, I, you know, I heard a car alarm go off, and I says, I wonder if it was my car. Well, they, both of them, put on their mask and went down to check to see whose car it was. And sure enough, it was my car. It turned out that someone was riding their moped through the parking lot. She lost control of her moped and it crashed right into the side of my car. Here's my poor car. The right rear, the mirror just was ripped right off and it was big dent right there in the side and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, but I'm so thankful Pastor James and Pastor Dan went down there. Otherwise, I might not have known that this happened. But so often we ignore the warnings and the alarms, partly because we hear them so often that we don't even pay attention to them any longer. And we also tend to, tend to ignore warnings because we don't like other people telling us what to do. You know, Joel Arthur Barker uh, tells a story about a man who owned a cabin in the mountains, and he also owned a beautiful Porsche to get there. Well, every Saturday morning, he would drive up the mountain road to, to his cabin, and the road uh, had a lot of blinds and blind curves and tricky turns, but he knew the, the road like the back of his hand because he drove it so often. Well, on one Saturday morning, he was driving up, the up to the cabin, and he was coming up to his favorite blind curve. And he knew it very, very well. And uh, he, he slowed down, shifted gears, tapped on the brakes a little bit. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, from around the bend came a car careening out of control, heading right toward him. The car literally almost went off the cliff, but at the very last second, the driver pulled back the car and is still just struggling to, to, to regain control. And the car swerved back and forth and back and forth. And, and as it swerved back and forth, the man thought, you know, I'm going to get hit. I'm going to get hit. And just as the car came barreling right by him, a beautiful woman stuck her head out of the window of the car and yelled at him at the top of her lungs, Pig! And the man thought, What? How dare you call me a pig? You're the crazy driver. Why are you calling me a pig? And furious, the man yelled back as quickly as he could, Sow! And as she continued down the road, the man felt good about himself, that he was able to get the last word in. He called her a female pig, a sow. And then he stepped on the gas and raced around the blind curve, and he ran right into the pig. See, no one's laughing here because no one's here, but I think that's a pretty hilarious story. He thought she was calling him a pig. But instead, all she was trying to do was warn him that there was a pig right around the curve. You know, sometimes we don't take those warnings very well. You know, when God made Ezekiel a watchman, he told him to warn the Jews. He told him to warn the Jews. And here's what Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel to warn them about. Take a look at Ezekiel 13, uh, verse 18, the next verse. He said, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked ways or from his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. You can stop there. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel to warn the Jews about sin. 
because they were as wicked as all get out. I mean, they didn't live. The Jews in Babylon didn't live to please and glorify God. They lived for themselves. They were only thinking of themselves. They were only thinking about their own self-gratification. They didn't love God. They didn't love their brother. They only loved themselves. This was 2,600 years ago. And here we are in the 21st century. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. People are still as wicked as all get out, perhaps, I mean, really getting more evil by the day, it seems. People still don't want to live to please and glorify God. Instead, they live to please themselves. It's all about them. And God's message back then and God's message today is exactly the same, and it's this. If you choose to live in sin, this is the warning. If you choose to live in sin and you live a life that is detached and apart from God, then it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And that something that it's going to cost you is actually everything. It will cost you everything. Sin is going to cost you everything. And that's what God said in in verse 19. Take a look at it again. Verse 19 says, But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. There it is. He shall die for his iniquity. God said that if a man or woman doesn't turn from his or her wicked ways, it will cost him everything. They will die for their sins. They will die in their sins. Here's how the Lord put it, and put it 15 chapters later. 15 chapters later in Ezekiel 18, 20. Verse 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. This is one of the most, this is one of the most jarring verses in the Bible. The soul who sins shall die. Now, what's a soul? Well, your soul is compri- comprised of your mind, your will, and your emotions. In other words, your soul is the very you. It's, it's life itself. It is you. you. You are a soul. And at the beginning of chapter 18, if you look up from verse 20 in Ezekiel 18, 20, look up to verse 4. God said this about your soul. He said, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God said all Souls are mine, which means, simply means that God made you. He made your life. He made your mind. He made your heart. He made your will. He made your emotions. He made, he made all of you. And you belong to him. We belong to God. And all that God has ever wanted, because he made us, all that he's ever wanted is for us to love him with all of our soul, our heart, and our mind. That's, that's what he's wanted us to do. But people haven't. They don't love God. They, they, they love themselves, and they want to do what they want to do. That's the nature of man, that we want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone telling us what to do. And that's what sin is. And the soul who sins shall die. And here's the problem with that. Everyone sins. Every soul sins, right? That's the problem. Every soul sins. And that means that after you die, your soul the real you will be separated from God for forever in a place called hell where God isn't present. And that's why it's called hell because God isn't there. You see, sin will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. And and the reason why God made Ezekiel a watchman was so that he might warn the Jews that that would happen to them if they didn't turn from sin and turn to God. They would perish in hell. They would be separated from, from God for forever in a place called hell. 
And see, and that's what watchmen do. You see, that's what watchmen do. They, they warn. They warn. They, they, they sound the alarm. The apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may, may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he said in, verse, in, in uh, Acts 20, verse 31, he said, be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, each of you night and day with tears. You see, the, the apostle Paul said that part of the ministry that he had was to warn people, right? Warn people about sin. You know, unfortunately, one of the unpleasant and necessary roles of a pastor is to warn others. Um, for example, pastors warn people about the consequences of sin. And we're to warn people about the reality of hell. Those pastors who don't preach on hell are making a serious mistake. We're to, we're to, we're to speak about hell just as we are to speak about heaven. But pastors are to warn the church about who our enemy is and, and how he deceives us and how he attacks us. And they are to warn the church about the dangers of false teachers and false uh, teaching that is rampant today in the church. And it is unpleasant. It is unpleasant to warn people because, because people don't want to hear it, first of all. And second, sometimes it requires us to call someone out. And that's very unpleasant to call someone out. Uh, I remember many, many years ago, a number, a number of our students, college students, attended a very well-known uh, missions conference. And when they returned from the missions conference, I was excited to hear how it went because my daughters went as well. And they, they, uh, they told us, we got together with them, and they told us about some of the b bizarre things that they heard from some of the speakers. And when they told me what some of the, what, what they said, what some of them said, it sickened me to my stomach. For example, I distinctly remember them telling us about the opening speaker who they said held up a feather a feather, a bird feather, and declared something to the effect, this is as close to God as you'll ever get. I mean, I, I, they were shocked, and I was shocked. I fell off my seat, and they couldn't believe it. And, and from what I gather, there were other speakers as well who said some very questionable things. And if we knew ahead of time what they were going to say, uh, then we would have warned them ahead of time, and actually, we wouldn't have sent them at all. We wouldn't have allowed them to go, but now we know. And uh, unless there's a drastic change, we will never send another student to this conference again. But what if we did? What if we did? Knowing what we know and knowing that they might, there might be false teachers in the speaker's lineup, what if we sent your kids to this camp, this missions conference rather, one more time? And what if your kids came back, and after they came back, their faith became mush? What if when they came back, they no, they no longer believed that the Bible was the Word of God? What, what if they came back and, and, and now believe that there were many ways to go to heaven? And they stopped believing that Jesus was the Son of God, but they just believed that He was a good man, and He taught good things. I mean, who would be responsible for your young person believing those things, well, I believe the responsibility would fall on the spiritual overseers of those young people, the youth leaders and the pastors, because they failed to protect the flock. You see, one of the duties of a spiritual leader is to protect his people. 
Paul said in Acts 20, 28, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own, by his own, with his own blood. Why are we, why are we to care, uh, pay attention and to care for the, those in the flock? Well, verse 29 tells us why. I know that after my, depart, my departure, fierce, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, the reason why we need to warn the flock is because there are those out there who are seeking to devour our, our, our people, draw disciples away from, from, from the Lord himself. And so it is our responsibility. Spiritual overseers are responsible for the flock, and God will hold them accountable for that. And we take that very, very seriously. Now take a look at Ezekiel 3.18 again. Let me show you. Uh, who God said would be responsible if his warnings weren't disseminated to others. Take a look at it again. God said, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, Ezekiel, you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. His blood I will require at your hand. See, God said in no uncertain terms that if the watchman failed to share God's warnings with others, then the watchman would be responsible. It would be on him. The blood of those people would be on him. And the Lord went on to say in verse 19, but if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. In other words, if on the other hand, the watchman does warn others and they don't pay attention to his warnings, well, that's on them. That's on them. But the watchman will have saved his soul because he did what God asked him to do. And that's all that God wants us to do is he just wants us to do what he wants us, what he asks us to do. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but this passage is a game changer, I think, when it comes to evangelism. Because this passage places sharing our faith in a whole new light. Places it in a whole new light. See, I think most people are under the illusion or under the misconception that it is the, it is the pastor's responsibility to tell others about Jesus. It is the minister's responsibility to tell or proclaim Jesus to others. It's his job and not your job, our job. And that's, but that's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every believer, that every believer is responsible for telling others about Jesus. In fact, Jesus commanded that we tell others about him. Here, let me give you a few verses here. Mark 16, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I mean, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And he said it to them, right? Plural, he said it to all of them. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's up to you. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter wrote, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, we are to proclaim God's excellencies, Jesus' excellencies, who called, the one who called us out of darkness and put us into light. And even in the Old Testament, the admonition for all of us to tell others about God is unmistakable. 
Psalm 105, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Let people know. Make his name known among the peoples. And in Psalm 96, verse 2, sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation from day to day to day to day. Tell others about the salvation of the Lord. You see, it's not just the job of the pastor. It's your job as well. It's all of our jobs. Because your youth pastor doesn't have a seat in your classroom, but you do. And your pastor doesn't have a desk at your office where you work, but you do. Your pastor doesn't have a seat at your kitchen table where you live, but you do. Your pastor doesn't play basketball on your basketball team, but you do. Your pastor doesn't live and live and walk where you live and where you walk, but you do. Therefore, it's up to you. It's not up to your pastor, but it's up to you to tell the precious people around you about, about God. You know, it's kind of like this, uh, con- this glass of liquid here. I don't know if you can see it. I hope you can see it. But it's like this la- glass of liquid. What if I, what if I told you that this is, this is the cure for cancer. I dis- I've discovered the cure for cancer. And if you drink just a mouthful of this, this will cure you of cancer. It has been proven. It has been tested 100% guaranteed. Your cancer will go away. It will knock it out. If you drink it, it will knock it out. It doesn't matter what kind of cancer you have. It could be pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, stomach cancer, brain cancer. It will heal your cancer instantly. So let's say you hear about this cure. All right, you hear about this cure. And so you bring your 12-year-old daughter to see me because your 12-year-old daughter has cancer. All right, and you beg me. You beg me to let her sip this so that she can have the cure, so she can be, be healed of cancer. And you beg me with tears, and I just, and I refuse. I say, no, no, I, I just, no, I, for whatever reason, I refuse. And you beg me, and you plead with me, and you cry, and, and, and I don't, I'm not willing to give her the cure, right? And she gets worse, and she gets worse, and she gets worse, and then she dies. Yet she didn't have to die if I gave her the cure. But what if I refuse to give her the cure? If I refuse to give her the cure, who would be responsible for her death? Well, in a sense, I would be. I would be, in a sense, because if I'd given her the cure, she would be alive. She would live. See, that's what, get, that's what God's getting at in this passage in Ezekiel. God asked Ezekiel to warn his people about sin. And if they turned from sin and to God, they would live. And then, if Ezekiel didn't warn them about sin... They would certainly die, for, uh, die in their sins, and then their blood would be on Ezekiel's head. It's such a sobering thought. Do you know why it's up to us to share our faith? It's because we have the cure, right? We have the cure for sin. The cure for sin is Jesus. I mean, he is the cure because he died on a cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And whoever believes in him will be saved. Whoever believes in him will be cured in a sense of sin. He, whoever he believes in him will, will be forgiven of their sins and, and God will give to them the Holy Spirit and they will receive the gift of eternal life. 
so that one day when they leave this place, they'll go to live in heaven forever and ever and ever. And that's why it's so important for us that we, we get this cure out, that we tell people about Jesus so that they will live eternally in heaven and be forgiven of their sins. And if we don't do that, if we don't do that, if we don't say anything, consider the alternative for that person who doesn't know Jesus. The alternative is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. If you don't, if someone doesn't believe what a, the fate that awaits them is, is too horrible to imagine. You can't even think about it. A second reason why we want people to believe in Jesus is because very simply, people matter to God. They matter to God. I mean, young people and old people, rich people and poor people, doesn't matter what gender, what, what color, right? It, people matter to God, and people matter to God, therefore they should matter to us. You know, recently I, I heard about a movie called Free Burma Rangers. Here's the, here's the movie poster, Free Burma Rangers. It's on Amazon Prime Video. It is, it is the remarkable story of a man named David Eubank and his family who were compelled by Christ to, to, to go and share God's love with people who were in the midst of war, right in the midst of war. Um, and so he, he and his family went. And their little kids, they all went. And it's really more of a documentary than a movie. And they got five stars. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie with five stars, maybe except, Pepper, uh, except uh, Star Wars. I was going to say Pepperdine, not Pepperdine. Star Wars, right? So I watched it, right? And I had to, I had to pay for it. You got to pay for it. It was, it was eight bucks. But I'm telling you, it was eight of the best bucks I've ever spent, right? It, it was, it, I, I was just riveted. It was, it was powerful, and it just, it really moved me. Cheryl and I watched it together. I want to show you a brief clip of something that happened to them when they were in Iraq. Take a look. We're here in our base in, in Kurdistan, Iraq. On June the 2nd, 2017, we did a rescue of a little girl and a man under fire by ISIS, ran behind a tank and grabbed her. A lot of help. The next day, we got news that there was more people in the Pepsi factory. Infiltrating through the Pepsi factory, found our first wounded guy and then a little girl. She turns out to be named Surya. And then I look in a room and I see this woman. It was Kofran who had called us. He'd been shot for four days. I saw a little boy, Abdul Rahman, shot, and that little girl had followed us. So there's three there. And then I looked out in the street and I saw a bunch of dead bodies, including a guy in a wheelchair and a blown up car. And there was this woman who moved a bunch of, amongst three dead bodies. And I was like, no way. And she looked at me, and I don't know what she said in Arabic, but I knew the meaning. It was, help me. I was like, she's been shot there at least four days. I found out now it's five days laying there. There's no way we can cross that open area. We're going to die, and we're going to ruin this whole rescue. It's not bravery, it's foolishness. We're going to die, and these four people we've already got are going to die. And I just said this terrible prayer. I said, Jesus, just take her to heaven. She's not going to survive anyway. It's going to get everybody killed. And I said, oh, that's a terrible prayer. I don't know what else to pray, Lord, help. And Zuhair, the Iraqi private with us, goes, I'm going to go get her. He looks up, he points at the wire. We bring it down, some wire, electrical wiring. I cut it. I splice it together, make about a 30-yard length. And Zuhair turns to, to this little girl, and she threw the wire out, landed on this woman's chest. She tied that wire around her arm. I was just praying in Jesus' name, don't get shot and don't let that thing slip. And Zuhair and I pulled her in got her in and she was as she came in she said God is great and she looked at me and said brother 
Like you didn't leave me. Got her out, and I finally put her down, and I said, What's your name? She said, My name is Iman, which means faith. And this is Surya, her daughter. And then we sent them out. Saheli picked us up, and we went on to our missions. We had more fighting, more rescues, and we lost track of her. But after the Battle of Mosul was over, we came back. We started finding almost all the people that we rescued. Almost everybody, even in that rescue, we found. But we never found the girl we drug off the street named Iman or the little girl, Surya, for over a year. And we prayed and prayed. This time in Mosul, we were visiting Kofran and other people we rescued, Aisha and Rahab. And in the morning, yesterday, 1 October, I prayed, Lord, help us find this girl in Jesus' name today. And we're at the rescue site looking at and all of a sudden this man walks by with a strange look at his face looking at us and then comes over and he goes, what are you guys doing here? We said, we were part of the rescue a year ago. We helped some people. He goes, I've been looking for you. I said, who are you? I'm Muhammad. Iman's husband. We've been praying to God. We've been hoping to find you. And I just hugged him and it felt great. I'm crying because it was awesome. It's life. Life from death. Now we're reunited. We get not only to be part of her life, but we get to meet her again. He took us home to her, and there she is, sweet and beautific, and like an angel, glowing. And I remember when I first saw her, I thought, this is a special lady, man. It's a tough lady and special. And I saw her alive, and it was a great uh, reunion, how she'd been praying for help and thought she's dead. And I said, you know, what did you think when, I, when you saw me? She said, I, I thought it was a dream. I didn't think it was real. I thought it was a dream. But God saved me, and you saved me, she said. I said, I said you know, the real story is God saved you. Your daughter saved you, the Iraqi army saved you. And a lot of people were praying. We were part of it. We were just a small part. And you didn't give up. She said, I can't walk. You know, my sh hip shattered, shot. I still have uh, the bullets in my arm, but we have no money for surgery. So I said, we're gonna take care of that. With God's help and our friend's help, we will take care of that. And we commit that to you. We're a family. And I said, I don't, you probably don't remember when I pulled you in, I said, if I ever find you again, you'll be like my family. And we mean that. Don't depend on us, depend on God. But as long as we're alive and He helps us, we're going to help you. So we're in this together. So that was a, a wonderful day, a reunion. And we didn't do it. God did. We were looking at the rescue site, and her husband comes up and meets us. There was no plan. No one called ahead. To me, that was a miracle. And I'm grateful. And thank you, everyone, for praying. Isn't that powerful? Iman was desperate. She was all shot up. She was trapped, laying there in this place for five days. Couldn't move because if she stood up, they would have shot her to death. I mean, she was, she was dying. But David Eubank and his Iraqi friends saved her. Why? Why? because she was a human being and her life mattered and she desperately needed saving. It was not okay for her to die. And David and the others were willing to risk their own lives to save that, that little lady. I mean, this, this clip graphically illustrates why we must share our faith because people matter and they matter to God and they should matter to us. And you know, here's the thing, people are all around us are dying. And I don't mean just physically, but people are dying spiritually. 
people are as lost as lost can be. I, I don't think I've ever seen people in our country more lost than they are today. And without Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. And it's not okay for one person to go to hell. It's not okay. And if we don't warn them, if you don't warn them, and we don't share the good news with them, then it will be on us. That's what this is saying. It will be on us. And I believe that we will be held, called to account for why we didn't share our faith. You know, the, the, the answer to the question, now what, is this. All right, in these very uncertain times, times, now what? Let's tell people about Jesus. More than ever before, let's tell people about Jesus. And I don't mean let's get in their face, but I'm talking about lovingly and gently and graciously. Let's tell them about Jesus. And sometimes it might even mean that we're going to have to have those uncomfortable conversations, warning people lovingly because we love them, because we care about them, because we don't want them to be lost forever. See, this is the great need of the hour. The great need of the hour is that people need Jesus. So I hope you'll do that. Not because you're a pastor, because you're not, but because you are one of God's watchmen. All right, let's close our time in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, this was a very sobering, jarring passage. It's so easy for us to think that we can just pass off the work of sharing our faith and telling our story and evangelism to, to someone else like our pastors. But fa Father, the, the truth is it's, it's something that we all must uh, be engaged in. Every one of us, every one of us that knows you has a story to tell. Every one of us can tell someone else about how much we've come to love you and all that you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us, do a work at, in the people of South Bay Community Church. That, Father, whether, regardless of what our situation's at, regardless of where we're at in this life, you would help us, God, to be a, a mouthpiece for you, a watchman for you. Lord, help us, give us the courage to sound the warning. God, give us the courage to share your love. Give, give us the, the wherewithal to be a light, ambassadors for you. And Father, I pray for, for everyone out there, for all those who are out there who have yet to put their faith in you. Lord, they've heard, you've heard a warning today. I want to say to you, you've heard a warning today. And the warning is if you continue to live in sin and apart from God, then one day you will pay the, the ultimate price. You'll pay with your own life and you'll be separated from God for forever and ever and ever. Don't let that happen. Today, before we close, ask, tell Jesus that you believe in him, that you believe he was God's son, that he died on a cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. Tell him those things and tell him you commit your life to him and tell him that you will follow him from this day forward and that will change everything and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you will receive the gift of new life. Father, thank you so much for our time together today. Father, will you continue to, to bless us? Father, will you, again, do a work in us that we will take the work of sharing our faith more seriously than we ever have, and that even this week, we will begin to think of people that we need to share the good news with, and then give us the wherewithal and the faith to do it courage to do it. Thank you, Father. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.